The first important question is Popeyes or Chick fil A? It's very deep. Um, That's what Coptic fasting does to you. Chick fil A has grilled chicken um, nuggets, so I think that that carries the win. Um, you said once that our spiritual life dictates our social life, careers, and relationships, spouse, etc. Is there such thing as too much of a spiritual life and not enough of a social life? How can we not be too extreme with our spiritual life, maybe the solitude, and not be too social as well, or vice versa? Um, you have a good memory. Um, what actually I was trying to say, and what I'm usually trying to say, is there's no such thing as spiritual life and social life and academic life and career life. Um, what, I, what I'm trying to say is that spiritual life is the lens through which you see all of life. Um, and so it's like, it's the glasses that are on. So it's not something that's separate or independent um, of the rest of your life. Because if you say, I'm gonna devote this much time to my spiritual life, it doesn't make sense, right? It would be like saying, I'm gonna devote this much time to my nutrition, right? That's not a thing. You're either getting nutrition or you're not getting nutrition, right? And, and if you either have health or you don't have health. so. The idea here is not about a, a time thing. The idea is about how do you see the world? Because if you know who you are, if you know your identity, then you make your decisions based off of that. That's what I'm trying to say with that. So for example, if say I have a job offer, right? I don't say, um, when I'm making that decision, it's like, okay, what does this, how does this decision affect or impact my life, right? Does this take me away? Like, let's say I know that this is a job um, that means I'm not there on Sundays or it's a job that means I'm no longer gonna serve at all and I'm a servant or it's a job where I'm actually being asked to do something unethical right is that I say no this is not right for me spiritually and so this is something that I'm not gonna consider but it's not about saying this is the component but in terms of like the other part of the question about being extreme a spiritual life that's not that's a separate question. That's a valid question, but it's a separate question, right? Which is the same way that any can be, anyone can be extreme about anything in life, right? And that's why you do need to have a guide because maybe you are trying to have too much solitude when you shouldn't. Um, maybe you are taking on more than you can handle. That is a thing, right? And then you actually get so exhausted that you don't feel like doing anything um, after that. So that's the point of having a spiritual guide, right? Like that you do need to have a trainer that's that's watching it right I, I think I've told you guys that story before um, like my first time at the gym before I was as beautiful as I am today um, when I, I didn't I didn't know how to use that incline for like sit-ups so I got on it and I was told you know your your abs like your muscles should hurt right if you've done it right it should hurt so I did 10 nothing happened 20 nothing happened 30 nothing happened I ended up doing 400 and I felt nothing um, so I was like, clearly, I, I just don't know how to use this thing. Um, and then, then the next morning happened. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't even laugh or breathe um, from the amount of pain, right? So there is such thing as doing that spiritually too, right? And the devil sometimes will provoke, like instigate it himself so that you hate it, right? So that you think that what God wants from you, right, is to be like constantly doing particular things which might not be the right thing um, for you to do so that's why it's important it's important for you to have a trainer to discern that for you not for you to discern that for you right you go back to your trainer with your feedback 
right? You go back to your trainer and say, no, this was a bit too difficult, right? Or I feel this or I experienced X, Y, or Z, Z if you're American. Um, <laughs> and then and then Abuna will give his feedback. Sometimes he might say, suck it up, right? Other times he might be like, oh, okay, your personality maybe is not right with this, or maybe this isn't your language, let's figure out what yours is. Um, but that's that's the important part of that. Um, the importance of sexual purity in a relationship for marriage, please make me feel guilty. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> what should I say to you? Um, I'm, 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 I'm assuming that the question here is, is to discuss that issue as a whole. Um, you guys know what Otrivin is? Like it's a nasal decongestant for all you. Okay. All right. So do you guys know what happens if you use Ultravin like more than like three days in a row? You get rebound congestion. Okay. It's a big deal. Um, do you feel guilty yet? Um, and the reason I'm using Ultravin as an example is that sometimes you might take something that makes you feel a certain way or makes you feel like it's resolving a particular thing or that it's relieving a symptom that you have. But the thing that you're taking might not be the best thing for you, okay? And so sexual purity, is, it, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, and I, don't, I have no interest in making you feel guilty, okay? I, I have an interest in you being healthy, right? So it's not about whether you feel ashamed of it or not. That's not the main concern. We don't have an objective of making you guys feel like garbage, um, even if by accident you do. Um, but until you're married to someone, that person's not yours, period. And so what you're doing is you're taking something out of season. It's like eating a blackberry before it's actually ripened, right? And so you might end up liking that bitter taste or getting conditioned to that bitter taste and thinking that the bitter taste is how it should taste, but you don't know. And you think you know because you like that feeling. And that's why I was using Ultravin as an example. Because you, were, you weren't able to breathe or you felt like you couldn't breathe. And here's this thing that made you breathe. Right? And so you're like, okay, well, here's my solution. Right? And so, but you don't realize that actually it wasn't a solution. It was a Band-Aid. Right? Or it was worse than a Band-Aid. It might even mean something that caused an actual injury. Right? And so there's a lot of things that happen that you don't know, you don't know until you know, right? I've had people, and I'm, I'm a celibate, right? But I've had people tell me that they're really struggling because they compare their spouses to previous partners, right? And they're tormented by it. They're actually tormented by it because they're like, I'm kissing my wife, or I'm sorry to be explicit, I'm having sex with my wife, and I'm envisioning previous partners. And it's not just men that have this complaint, it's also women that have this complaint. Right? Or there'll be a partner that they had or a boyfriend or a girlfriend that was better, quote unquote, at some things than their spouse is. And so then they start doing that. And then they start justifying other behaviors and saying, well, I can get this from my wife, but I'm gonna need this elsewhere. I can get this from my husband, but I'll get this outside, right? So you should view, and this could be, you could treat this romantically if you choose to. You should view that what you're doing right now is you being faithful to your spouse from right now, right? So your faithfulness to your spouse is not something that begins when you get married. Your faithfulness to your spouse has already begun, right? Where you're saying, you're not mine, 
right? I, I belong to my spouse in a certain name here, whoever it is, right? And so until that person is my spouse, I'm not belonging to you and, and, and you're not belonging to me. So I'm not going to take something out of season. So it's not that we don't understand, like God designed sex to be pleasurable, okay? Like if he, like he, he didn't have to do that, right? It was, it was meant to be nice. God also didn't design people to go part way, right? That's why like when people start trying to have these boundaries of, uh, we're going to hold hands and we're going to allow, I'm allowed to kiss in this spot or this spot, but this one's not allowed, right? Or that's not how you're designed. You're designed to go all the way. Like that's the reality, right? Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not being weird here. I'm, I'm a monk, right? But my point is that you have to be, you've got to be real about that, right? And so marriage used to happen much younger, right? Puberty was also much later, right? And so I, I do want to say that we do appreciate that it is a struggle. Right? Like we do really appreciate that that is not easy. Not just in terms of, of how long it is to wait, but also even in terms of um, the pressures that are on you societally. And that's not an easy thing. Right? But that's what I'm saying. You can view it as a, as a romantic thing too. Right? Like all those love stories, like, right? Where like some woman, something happens and some guy tries to marry her and the guy sails across the seas and goes to prison and come back 40 years later hoping that she's still there and hopefully she's still there. It really sucks to be that guy. But like that scene romantic, right? It's seen as romantic because that guy or that girl is faithful and waiting um, for this person. So I don't care to make you feel guilty. I would say if you want to have a more fulfilling, successful, healthy sexual life in your relationship then you should care i'm not interested in telling you you should feel like crap if you messed up right that's not i don't have an agenda for that i would rather that you just know that it's in your favor to do it but abuna is a married man so he might have better um advice about that <laughs> should have left <laughs> not the marriage the meeting <laughs> um just a small tiny correction, not correction, but addition to Abuna, when um, the God designed the sexual uh, lust in us, this, the sexual lust is a result of the fall. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were, were both naked and were not ashamed because the lust was not sexual. There was a lust that was spiritual, that was emotional, that was mental, that was um, an attachment. Uh, but as a result of the fall, the, they looked at one another with a lust. That's the small addition. So. Um, and God now used this fall in order to frame it to be that the lust is used in marriage. So if somebody asks, so how, how would Adam and Eve may have children if they, if they haven't fallen? Definitely, we cannot say that the fall happens for them to have children. Otherwise, God has designed the fall. This is theologically very important. And the gift of having children was, was given to them uh, before the fall. So... Uh, the lust or the love between them, the love between them before the fall would be um, spiritual, mental, emotional, and it would be a reason for them to be excited about, about one another to have, to have a sexual relationship. So the sexual relationship would be without lust. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen. But definitely God did not design the fall for us to have children. If we could change the mic, that would be great. Um, 
The other thing, this is important because it, uh, it can lead to the thinking and no, and no, God gave us this lust so we should use it. No, God did not give us the sexual lust. The sexual lust came before of the fall, because of the fall and God aligned it to be in the marriage to be uh, done correctly. It's, I hope this is very, very clear. Uh, in Genesis chapter one, it says that they have been given to grow and multiply. And this was a gift before the fall happened. Um, so that's that's important. So think about it this way. Successful marriages happen when the attachment is based on the way we were created to begin with, which is spiritual, emotional, and mental oneness between Adam and Eve. And that's why you see that the successful marriage are the ones that are based on the way we think before the fall, not after the fall. This is Genesis 1 and 2 shows this very much. So. Build your marriage, build your relationship on the way God created you, is to connect with the person. Thank you, Michael. Is to connect with the person on the way God created us to connect with uh, the partner. whatever. There's a lot of questions. trying to choose that random here. Sorry, I dropped one. There's a question, I'll, I'll link two questions together. There was a question about girls needing to wear bras to not make men fall into sin. So apparently somebody told girls that they need to wear bras so that boys don't fall into sin. And then there's a question that I think is related it's a really awkward thing to repeat loudly. Um, so the, the question is that somebody told girls that they should wear bras so that they don't cause men to fall into sin and whether that's fair to women or not. And then the second question that I think is related is does God expect us to abide by cultural norms for example, how the church accepts boys uh, to cut their hair. So I'm glad that there's a girl one and a boy one. Um, so obviously the church doesn't have a, like, a mandate to particularly single out girls and say, here's what you're doing that make boys stumble and therefore like, go behave, um, nor for the guys. But at the same time, she, she does have a role to say that. Right? And by that, it's not about being particular about every single small thing, but you should care about your obligations to one another, right? So for example, um, everyone talks about guys being like seduced by, by attractive women. Um, I will never forget at a retreat, not in this state and nobody here, um, where some shirtless guy walked in and I honestly thought one of the girls was gonna have a heart attack. Um, 
I had never in my life seen such a reaction. Like, I honestly, I'm not being serious. I didn't know that was possible. Um, and I was like, whoa, this is a big deal for her. Right? Like, like, I, like apparently, apparently girls have lust too. Um, so I do think you should care. But it's not about being, it's not about your, your, your femininity or your masculinity. It's about the duties that we have towards one another, right? If you do know that behaving in a particular way causes a particular behavior, or that dressing in a particular way, irrespective of whether you're a guy or a girl, affects somebody else, you should care about that, right? How would you feel, for example, like if somebody is nagging at you nonstop that it makes you want to burst and eventually you snap like are you not going to wish on some level that when the person sees that you're irritated that they would stop like is that not a normal expectation right to be like you know that you're bothering me i told you i'm bothered and you decide that it's funny to keep going right you would you would probably find that inconsiderate or, or rude or worse Right, so whether you're a guy or a girl, I, I don't think that guys should be coming in wearing tank tops or muscle shirts or doing anything like that either, right? Irrespective of whether you consider yourself attractive or not, right? It's the idea that other people view you however they want to view you, right? And so you should take that into account. Um, there might be some things that are stressed more. Thank you, Mike. That's Mike with the mic. <laughs> that was so funny. Is it on? Yes. Okay, sorry. So, there might be... Where did it Was it that bad? <laughs> so, some things might be culturally motivated, okay? So, I do recognize that some things are culturally motivated. Right? But you do still need to take culture into account because you don't live a culturally. Right? So you might have a conflict between yourself and Egyptian culture, for example, or with Eritrean culture, or, or Ethiopian, or Syrian, or Indian, or whatever culture that your motherland happens to be from. But you should also take into account that even within Western culture, there's cultural differences too. Right? Canadian culture is very different than American culture, Californian culture is very different than New Jersey culture. Right? Like it's not even like it's just a variation from country to country. Within a country, within a state, NorCal is very different than SoCal. Right? So you, everybody needs to be sensitive to other people's responses to something. So you do have a role as a Christian to say, if I can deny myself the thing that I want for the sake of someone else, then I ought to consider doing that. Right? It's not about whether or not the other person is right or wrong as much as it is about how I affect them. Okay? So... Um, I don't know anything of the whole like bra situation. I don't know the context was right or the hair thing But instead it should be if someone's bringing to my attention That I am becoming a stumbling block through my personal choice Can I give that thing up? Is it something that I have to feel? Um, so strongly about right or is it something that I need to put my um, my foot down on is that fair as an answer? Is there like a follow-up to, to that? Okay. Um, please discuss the hypocrisy and legalism in the Orthodox Church. A lot of people are mean and rude, but think they are holy and better than everyone because they follow the rules such as fasting, being early for church on Sunday, etc. 
Um, and I'm going to tie that with another question that I think is also related, which is what do you think about Abuna Anthony Masih's sermons and his style and content of Protestantism in his church? Are we to be cautious? If so, in what way? Um, that's loaded. Um, I actually really think it's easy to become a Pharisee in the Orthodox Church. Okay? It's very easy to become a Pharisee. And you need to know that Pharisees were well intended. Okay? That Pharisaism didn't start in a vacuum. Pharisaism started in a re as, a, as a reaction to the people of God going astray. They didn't start off with this intention of being um, the way that we perceive Pharisees today. They started off as saying, we want to keep ourselves pure. They, were, they come from a group called the Hasidim, the pure ones. Okay? And they wanted to keep the faith pure. They said, we got in trouble with God because we strayed from his commandments. So we're going to become the experts in the law so we can help people keep the commandments because we don't want that to happen again, which was not a horrible um, intention of any kind. So whoever wrote the first question about the hypocrisy and legalism, um, obviously this person feels hurt for some reason or like somebody's being arrogant or a prude or, or what have you. And so my answer to almost everything in life is what is the truth and what does it mean? So is what the person doing right or wrong? Because it's not about how they did it perfectly or not perfectly. Is it right or wrong? Should, should we be fasting, yes or no? And I'm, I'm trying to poke at whoever wrote this, not to be a jerk, but to say, be balanced, right? Don't say because there's some guy who's been arrogant or treated me like crap, that that, is a, that means that what he's doing is wrong and I'm not gonna do it, right? There should be a question of, first of all, was the person really, because some people will be like, oh, judging, because I'm, I'm actually more concerned about the opposite extreme. I actually find now that if somebody says they're fasting, they're like, oh, wow, look at you, Bismillah Salib, you're so holy, right? Where I'm like, and so now people are shy to fast around their Orthodox friends, which is really messed up, right? Or where if they say like, you know what, I don't want to have all the girls over at the apartment have a party, right? This is... I know some of you might think I'm talking about you right now, but I've encountered this many, many, many times, so I might not have anything to do with you, right? Where, where that person is ridiculed or treated like garbage because they said they're not comfortable with that. That's messed up, right? So it's possible that somebody is also reacting. It might be that that person is speaking where they are because they feel that they're also treated badly for their view. So the right question should be, what is the right thing to be done? That's the first question. Right, because maybe the person has a point and you should take it. If there's a true point being made, you should take it, right? The person might not be perfect in how they've done it, right? They might have been aggressive in how they did it. But you should also try and look for the good in what they're doing of saying, this person cares so much about this issue. Because you might be doing the exact same thing as them in another way. In fact, the way that this question is worded suggests that to me, right? Because your, your person who's writing this is making it sound like this person thinks they're holy and better because they do X, Y, and Z, whereas the questions start off by saying, discuss their hypocrisy, which means that you've already decided that person is a hypocrite, right? In the way that you phrase the question, I'm not taking shots at you, right? But the problem is that you guys live in, a, we all live in a culture right now of extremism, right? And everybody is trying to make a dramatic point one to the other, right? Are you far right or are you a crazy liberal? 
right? These are the labels that we like throw at each other now. It's no longer what's your position on this or why do you have this view? It's, are you Trump? Oh, then you're a bigot and a racist and an and anti-women, right? Oh, you're a, a Democrat? Oh, so you're, you actually are an abortionist and you're blah, 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 blah. This kind of tone is slipping into the church, right? And now we're using against each other, using religion, and that's wrong, okay? From both sides, it's wrong. So instead, what we should be doing is saying, what is the right thing to do? And if someone approaches you in a way that's, that's aggressive or that you don't like, and you can't take it, you should approach that person. Don't be afraid to confront it in a polite, respectful way, right? There's nothing wrong with saying to someone like in private, you know, I really appreciate that you care enough about this, that you're willing to bring it up. To be honest with you, I felt a little bit offended. I felt like you were putting me down or I felt like you, I felt like you were judging me because they might not have been judging you. So you can only say what you felt. You don't state it back as a fact. And I'm like, no, you were thinking this and this and you blah, blah, blah. Just be like, when you did this act, behavior, said these words, whatever it is, my internal reaction was this and it was a little bit hurtful to me. And I just wanted to tell you that because I, I, I actually value our friendship or I value that you had this opinion, but maybe the way that you said it was a little bit too much for me, right? Um, and you'll be surprised. You might, maybe the person is in the wrong, but your Christian response to this person helped them, right? Maybe they did actually approach you completely wrong. And it might be that they didn't even realize that the way they're behaving could be interpreted in that way. I've done that to people before, where I've said something that I thought was gonna be totally understood as a joke and wasn't, right? And the person was really upset with me and rightfully so, that's how they took it. Right, but I didn't know, I genuinely didn't know. Right, so that when I'm told, then I can now be like, okay, now I know in my relationship with this person, this is how they perceive things. And I can also reflect on it and say, well, maybe this is a general character flaw in myself that I didn't realize. And that somebody's helped me to find out about myself. Right, so be as objective as possible. Okay, and look for what is the true thing. Don't look for an excuse to not do something right because somebody who's doing right did right in the wrong way. The question is only is, is it right? And if so, then what, what does that mean for me? What should I do? So that we don't become these emotional people who just scream and yell and mudsling and, and, and stuff like that. And so on the same token, right, is this question about Abuna Anthony Messiah. And I don't, um, I think it's so dangerous to speak about individuals, okay? I'm, a, I'm aware that there's an online like fight apparently going on somewhere about this whole issue. And I think it's wrong, okay? Facebook's not the forum for theological debate. That's not, that's, that's not a mandate, that's not a thing, right? But in, 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 in calling something Protestant, you have to ask a question. What do you mean by Protestant? Because these have objective definitions. So if what you're accusing a person of, irrespective of who the person is, whether a priest or a lady or whoever, if you're gonna use the label Protestant, then you must mean Protestant by doctrine. And so if you're making such an accusation, then it can't be about, he seems this way to me, it has to be an objective thing. Did the person teach a teaching that is against orthodoxy objectively? And objectively speaking, if that is an accusation made, the church has a system. The church has priests and it has bishops. And you have a role as lady to protect orthodoxy too. So I'm not, I'm not mad at a person for questioning. You as lady have a role to that, right? Of saying this teaching doesn't sound right, mm -hmm. right? And then you go to the person who's been delegated that authority through laying on of hands, that their job is to rightly divide the word of truth. 
and there's a system, right? So that if there's somebody, I was accused of all sorts of stuff for the Good Friday sermon I did like a year ago, right? And so when somebody got on Facebook, because apparently that's like where the public forum is, right? I responded only on the church website because Facebook's not there and said, if you have a problem with my teaching, no problem. You're entitled to have a problem with me or my teaching. You can talk to my bishop who knows me and who is also the authority in my diocese to delegate all of this. I stand by every assertion that I made. These are my assertions. So please, by all means, and if you need his contact info, I'll give it to you. And I'm not being sarcastic. It's good that you care, right? I'm not upset that you care, right? And then if my bishop had a problem with my teaching, then my bishop is going to talk to me and tell me your teaching is wrong and correct it, right? And if it's right, great. But to, to, to turn everything into a public fight is very dangerous, right? And so the other thing to realize is that there's some things that people are calling Protestant that are not necessarily Protestant, okay? That there might be a difference in style and you might not prefer that style and you're entitled to not like that style. And it might even be that you have a valid concern about the style. But you need to also be careful that you're not imposing something that doesn't have an objective definition about it in an inappropriate way, right? Especially if this is a person who's not yours, right? Like when Anthony isn't preaching in, like in, in, in your parish, if he does and he said something wrong, then by all means go to the bishop and say we had a guest who did something that was wrong. But if he didn't do something wrong or if he's not in your church, then I need to ask why, what, what is it that you feel that you need to do? And I think this is, what the, this is why I link these two questions. I think this is what the first question is referring to as Phariseeism, right? Of people hunting out people to say why they're wrong. I'm not accusing you whoever's in the question of doing that. I'm saying this is the kind of thing that makes people sometimes think that, right? And so maybe somebody's more charismatic than, than another. Okay, I've only heard one sermon of Abuna Anthony in my life, so I, I'm not a, an Abuna Anthony authority to talk about his sermons or my opinions of them because it's irrelevant, right? I, all I know is he's a validly ordained priest who our metropolitan <laughs> has welcomed into our diocese. That's all I know, okay? And so it's not for me to determine that. If somebody were to come to me and say, I heard this teaching and I'm struggling with it, right? Then maybe I'll listen to, to find out. And if I find out and I think there's something wrong and I could be wrong, then I will also go to the right authority and ask, right? Like, I'm not going to just do it. Um, so it's really important that we're, we're, we're not pouncing on people. On the flip side, okay, I do think it's good, whoever has written this, that you do care. And now I'm, 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 I'm detaching this explicitly from Abuna Anthony Messiah. I don't want anyone misconstruing what I'm saying, okay? So that's X done for the Abuna Anthony part. Now, that aside, worrying about a trend of a wrong style in the church, absolutely, I, I, I'm glad that you're sensitive to that. Okay, because yes, there is a, a bit of a movement um, of a spirit that's not properly orthodox. I'm not going to label it Protestant because it's not necessarily Protestant. Okay, but there is a spirit that, that is losing its traditionality. And by that, I don't mean conservatism. I mean traditionality. They're two different things. Okay, and so... If there is a teaching that's wrong, you have the, the duty to speak up and say something's not right here. If there's something wrong in the spirit, you have a duty to stand up and say, there's something that's not right here and I want to raise my hand and alert somebody to this. So from that respect, like hats off to you for caring and for noticing, right? It's just make sure that whatever you do, you do in a Christian manner, okay? That you don't do a sin in your pursuit of good, right? Like if you, 
if you want to save your friend from falling into a hole, the, the means shouldn't be to cuss them out, right? Like, like that's doing wrong while trying to save your friend, right? You can yell, you can scream, you can call danger, you can run in front of him, you can try and physically restrain him, right? But you don't take like a bat and start beating him and cripple him, right? So that he's permanently damaged, like I saved your life, man. Right, like that's, that's not the right way. So I'm saying, so even if you see something wrong, good that you're calling it out, but do it in a Christian manner, do it in a Christian behavior, use the methodology that we've received. Because if you're not using the methodology, then you're actually also not being orthodox in your way. You might be being Luther yourself by taking your petition and nailing it to the door, right? In the name of orthodoxy, right? So be careful that you don't accidentally become a hypocrite, right? In calling out something that's, that's a wrong teaching. There's just something small objective because there was uh, it came to my attention an interpretation of a verse um, by Saint Paul. Saint Paul is um, saying, uh, "Who will deliver me from this my own body?" Because whenever I want to do good, I I find evil in front of me. It's not the good that I want to do is what I do; is the evil that I don't want to do is what I do. And it was I I, I haven't read any of the forums, but it was said that this Saint Paul has a weakness. Um, if that's the case, because I haven't read, if that's the interpretation of it, I would like to objectively to correct it. In all humility, St. Paul, in his, in his humility, when he describes something for us to do, he puts himself as if he's the one who's weak about it. So he's putting himself in our shoes that he's struggling with, uh, that, that he's struggling with doing evil more than good. St. Paul has no problem at all of doing this, calling things he sees, as if he does it, but he didn't fall in any of these weaknesses. So that's the part that I say that St. Paul did not have a weakness and he's doing the wrong thing instead of doing the right thing. It's his style to put himself in the shoes of others when he's trying to instruct them. And that's the utmost of humility of St. Paul. The evidence of, the, of this is that when he tried to defend his ministry, uh, he says, in, I will talk to you as if a fool. And he listed his authentic, authenticity as an apostle. So when he is about to talk about himself personally, and he's going to prove to the Corinthians that I am a true apostle because they did not consider him one. This is one of the issues that were divided in, in Corinth. He, he prefaced it with saying, let me talk as a fool. And then he listed his uh, authentic uh, struggles for, for Christ in order to tell them that I struggled more than and labored more than all of them. So basically, if it's have been explained that St. Paul himself suffered weaknesses in the flesh, that's not the case. St. Paul explains it in a way, taking upon himself our weaknesses and explaining And that's the humility of St. Paul. Um, there's two questions about humility. Um, one is, how can I practice humility without damaging my self-esteem? And the other question is, how can I, um, how can I attain humility and keep, and keep Humility, and I think what they mean is that if I realize that I'm humble, then does that mean that I'm not humble? Um, the simplest uh, definition of humility to me is, is just self-knowledge. Okay, it's, it's knowing who you are before God. It's not who you are compared to anybody else. And the only reason I'm saying God is because God is the standard of perfection and you're created in his image and likeness, okay? And so if you understand that as humility, you're not going to struggle with any of, of those things. Um, because humility becomes objective. It, it's, not, it's not an emotion, right? And so, for example, um, 
again, I, I'm just, I like the war analogies all the time. If I'm going to war, um, and I'm aware of myself, I'm aware of my body, right? If I know that I have a, a bad left shoulder, right? I just know that I have a bad left shoulder, right? And if I know that I have a better skill in shooting arrows, then I just, I know that I'm good at shooting arrows. And so when I'm in war, I'm simply saying it would be unwise of me to try and fight with my left because it's weak, right? So I'm going to have to play to my, my right in that, in that scenario, right? Or I'm not a fast runner, so keep me as an archer, right? It just becomes a fact about yourself, right? Of saying, this is where I fall short of perfect health. This is where I fall short of perfection. And so you're not going to become arrogant. Right? The other part is when you are able to identify that you didn't do anything <laughs> to yourself. Right? Like whether it's a virtue, right? Like if you're like, oh wow, like I've become more patient. It's like, cool, you didn't invent patience. Right? Or like if if somebody if you gave a really good talk, sorry, you didn't invent the truth. It was either true or it wasn't. Right, and so it becomes more objective if you can look at those things objectively and say that whatever is good is good because the design is good, right? And whatever is bad is because I made a mistake in pursuing the design, but you also don't need to be worked up about making the mistake because we make mistakes, right? So the humility, it becomes a consequence, right? And so a person who's humble simply knows themselves and it's just that simple, right? Of being like, yeah, I'm not there yet, but I'm trying. Right? Or like, I'm unable to do this thing that's a fact about me. Or like for some reason, God allowed me the ability for now to be able to do X and I do X. Um, so if you keep it objective, um, you're not gonna have a self-esteem issue because y y there's nothing to be worked up about. It's not about liking yourself or not liking yourself, right? It's, you, it's actually important for you to have a healthy self-esteem. Um, it's just that you're not gonna be worked up about making mistakes. That's why like, um, I think I've told you guys this before, most of you this before. One time when I was confessing to my father confession when I was growing up, I had done some sin that I thought was horrible. So I thought I was being really humble. When I went into like, oh wow, Buna, like I'm so bad. I can't believe I did this thing. Me, like me, I, I never thought I would do that. That's not like, and I went on and on and on and on. And he was giving me like the most look of disgust. Like, and I'm like, <laughs> so I kept going trying to soften it. Yeah, Buna <laughs> Francis. And then when I finally just stopped, like this is not working, um, he he's like, "Who do you think you are?" I was like, "What?" <laughs> I thought this was humble. Um, and he's like, "Oh, like this is a sin that all of us can do, but not you." And I was like, "That wasn't what I was thinking, but apparently it is what I'm thinking, right? Like like I didn't mean to think that way, but I was thinking that way. Otherwise, I wouldn't say things like, "How could I do such a thing?" Right? That means that I think that I am above such and such sins. That's a sin for those peasants over there. Right? But, but me, on the other hand, I don't. I don't fall into those sins. Right? Whereas a truly humble person knows himself. Right? That's why like, for me now, like, my prayer to God is, Lord, I know that if I'm given the opportunity for wrong, I'm taking it. That's me. Right? So except for your protection, except for your grace, I don't know what to do. Okay, so I'm going to try my best, but I need your help, right? So if you can acquire self-knowledge, um, you'll be much safer.
What are your thoughts? Um, just answering, I want you all to hear Abuna's answer, but just to help him uh, along with the questions. It's great that you're flooding it with questions. On Christians getting tattoos or of crosses, saints, verses, etc. I hear only the crosses, I didn't even hear that it's like there's actually tattoos of saints on um, and verses. A lot of people tend to attack that individual who gets tattoos and others believe that it's a blessing and a sign, a sign of pride, I think, a sign to be proud of that, I mean, probably that's what's meant here. Um, the, the Bible forbids um, in Leviticus um, 18 and 19 to have any inscription on our bodies, and definitely in the New Testament, our body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, being a church, you, you don't just get a picture from home and just uh, put it on the church. It has to be, in fact, um, a drawn icon, um, excuse me, written icon, and also it has to be anointed with the Meirun whenever there is a chance. Not necessarily, but and it has to be an original. Sometimes we put uh, copies of it, which is the church cannot afford the originals. Origin, uh, so they put copies. So your body is exactly the same. Nothing gets on it unless it has been anointed by the Meirun. Um, and that's that's the end of it. Um, crosses has been put on on hands in a s small size is not something extravagant, because um, in 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 Egypt people want to show their faith because they want to if their name doesn't reveal their Christianity, they want to not hide it. It's a sign of accepting tribulations, and it's very common and very in the street and in, on universities. I can tell you stories in uh, examinations or in grades. Um, men specifically because they, in culturally, uh, when men, when they wear crosses, the crosses are not to be put outside the shirt. He has to tuck the cross inside the shirt. It's very, very unwelcome to have uh, men wearing necklaces and it's outside the shirt. So a way of of compensating from this is to put inscribe a cross on their hands so that they have to have a visible sign of a cross that people know that they are a Christian and welcome this uh, openness of Christianity. So it's welcome or accepted that to have a small cross on the hand like this, but anything bigger, anything that's uh, portraying in terms of pictures and verses, I think verses are intended to be in the heart and applied rather than be inscribed on our skin. We need to inscribe it on our heart. That's what the Lord told through Joel, which is, um, St. Peter used it in Acts, uh, in the day of the Pentecost, that um, that he will pour the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, your children will see visions, and, and uh, your, your maidens will see dreams. That is exactly the intention of where the verses should be, to be in the heart and to be applied, not to be on the skin. Um, it, it is a source of pride. Let's let's show our pride by our actions rather than using our skin for displaying it. Uh, but it's strictly forbidden by the Bible to have tattoos. And if it's something small to reveal the faith, that's acceptable. But something that's big, uh, any anything big and portrayed in a big way, that's that's not acceptable. Sorry, this is the only way I can say it uh, in Arabic, the um, quenching of the spirit. Um, what are reasons behind it? Um, how to improve my love to God? How to avoid day by day traps to not fall and keep my light bright? 
I'm sorry if this is too many questions. That's not too many questions. Because um, they're, all, they're all connected. Quenching in the spirit can happen in, in many ways, right? I deal with God like he's real because he's real, okay? And think about it like a real relationship, right? Your, your relationship with someone can die for so many things, right? Your relationship with someone can die because you stop talking, right? Your relationship with another person can die because you become too self-absorbed, right? Your relationship with another person could be dying because you're treating them really badly, right? Your relationship with somebody could be dying because you're doing things against that person or against your relationship, right? Imagine, for example, if like, you keep telling your spouse, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. I just, I just can't help but sleep with other people, right? Like your, your words don't really mean much, right? At that point, because you're not, you're, you're not showing that you love them. And I'm using, I like using marital examples because God, God actually uses marriage as an analogous relationship to his relationship with our soul, right? And so a lot of the quenching the spirit in this generation is coming often from two things. There are many other reasons, I'm not trying to limit to these, but the most common that I think are going on in this age are being busy um, and sin. Um, and I'm not talking about sin in, in, a, in a legal way. I'm saying sin in a way that makes you sick, right? And so when you're busy doing everything but spending time with God, God's not really in your life. And then your image of God becomes so skewed because the major source of your teaching of God, if you're not spending time with him, is external and often incorrect, right? And so you're not gonna have a proper relationship built. You're hearing about some random guy that you don't actually really know very well, um, and it's not all positive, or it doesn't match reality, whether it's from the church or from public society. Right, of like, oh, you didn't do well on your exam because you didn't fast on Friday, right? That'll be something you might hear in church, or like, it's because you're a bad person and that's why you got this and this punishment from God. And so that doesn't make you like him much, right? Or the, then you've got society saying lots of things that are typically not very nice um, and often inaccurate. So if you're busy, then you've lost, you've lost your link, you've lost your knowledge, you've lost your experience, you've lost everything, right? And you're dealing with him so externally that you are gonna go cold. Right, you are, you're inevitably gonna go cold. You don't have a relationship because you've been too busy doing anything but being in a relationship, right? Whereas if you viewed yourself in a relationship, things change, right? Like a person who's married, even if they're not with their spouse all the time, they are never not married to their spouse. So whether they're at work, whether they're at play, whether they're in their car, whether they're messaging, whether they're trying to choose what they wanna eat for dinner, there's a decision that's linked to another person who exists in reality because that relationship is still alive and it's dynamic and it's working, right? So the busyness, I think, is a really big factor for this generation where like, we're, we're all, and I'm guilty of this a lot of times, really busy doing absolutely nothing, right? Like we're, we're, we don't know how the day f flew by, but if we actually were to sit down and look at our day, we probably did almost nothing, right? Profitable of any kind, right? So one is to review that part of, of what are you doing with your time? And the other one is sin. Because people don't realize that sin is still a big deal in the New Testament. And sin is not a big deal in a legal way of being like, oh, I made God so angry and therefore God's not talking to me. That's not the issue of sin, right? The issue of sin is one of disease, right? Imagine if like you sit there and you're cutting yourself up a lot, right? Or that you think it's like hilarious to shove your hand in the fire, 
right? Or that like you think that anorexia is okay. You're gonna get sick. And because you're sick, you're not gonna feel healthy. That's what it means. Like these are very simple statements, right? So when you're in that state, you're not enjoying health at all because your health is going, right? Because objectively you are becoming less healthy. And so you, you don't enjoy things that you would enjoy if you were healthy. And so you become very cold towards health, right? And it becomes your state of being. Your state of being becomes one of disinterest, apathy, inability, whatever it is, because you can't move. Because whatever illness that you've acquired by your choices has caused you to be in that state. So that's how, that's how it works with the spirit too, right? Is that when we work actively against God, when you're sinning, what you're doing is you're making yourself spiritually very sick. And so then things that you might have liked, like think about, a period of your life where you loved spirituality and you loved praying and you loved his baha and you loved liturgy and you loved whatever it is that you might have loved at some point right and then look at what your life looked like during that period where you may have liked those things and compare it to what you are like right now if you're not in that state still and look at what your behaviors are are like right i i i have a very addictive personality for example so like i don't i never really was into tv because my parents canceled cable on us in grade seven um but when Netflix came out, um, I, I actually had like a phase where I just had like a Netflix like binge like season. Um, and inevitably I was getting colder because all that was coming in was like designated survivor, like whatever, like thing that I was watching. Avatar is really good. Um, but like those were the things that would come in and those are not necessarily wrong. Like those things are not necessarily wrong. Right, but it's like, what are you filling it with, right? And if on top of it, you're, you're actively doing something wrong, right? Again, not to overuse the analogy, imagine if you just decide that all you're gonna eat is Carl's Jr. four times a day, right? Like 15 to 200 to 2000 calories every single meal, you're gonna be obese, I'm sorry. And it will also taste delicious, okay? But you are also gonna be lethargic. And if someone says, yo, let's go for a run, like you're not, you're not gonna be like, let's go for a run. Right? It's not going to happen. So the same thing for you spiritually is to understand that sin is doing something to you. Sin is not just a legal issue. It's not even at all a legal issue. Okay? It's about a state of health. And that is, that is how your spirit might be there. So how to avoid the day-by-day -day traps to not fall and keep the light bright? To remember actively that you're in a relationship with God. Right? To actually think about God throughout the day and speak to God in a meaningful way direct your thoughts throughout the day towards God, right? Like actually like direct whatever you're thinking about naturally, rather than directing them at yourself, direct them towards the person of God, right? If you have a problem, direct it at God. If you're happy, direct it at God. If you're excited, direct it at God, right? Like always direct it towards this being. And just like, again, to use that as an analogy, just like with your spouse, you might be texting throughout the day, right? You might be like, um, what's up, how's it going, lunch sucked, whatever it is, right? You're, you're having this conversation, but you're gonna meet up at some point in the day and have a real conversation too, right? There's gonna be a point where you're gonna be face to face and have a real conversation. You need to do that with God too. That there's also a part of the day that you say, God, I'm here to spend actual quality time with you and I'm not here to just tell you about me, right? That the objective is not for you to come here because a lot of the times people struggle with spiritual life and keeping the flame going because they don't know how to pray. They think that praying is to stand there with the script and shout random things at the Lord God that they can't see, right? In old King James English, right? And they feel like they, they accomplished a wonderful work, 
but you shouted gibberish, right? But instead, if you were to come to God and actually talk to Him about everything, right, and actually inquire from Him, who are you, right? What is it that you, that you are? What is it that you say? I don't, I don't know you, right? Like, and to start looking at that, to have your Bible informing that, to have your spiritual life informing that, then suddenly you're in a dialogue and things begin to change. Actually, they begin to change. That doesn't become just words, and you find that there are things that you never thought you'd enjoy that you'd enjoy because it has a different flavor to it, because you now get it. It's not just an activity, it's a, it's a real meaningful um, thing. So I would also say, as I always say, get yourself a good spiritual guide, right? To help you to understand why is this working or not working? Why is it that when I'm attempting this, I'm not getting there? Because sometimes, we're going, we're going dry because we're not actually approaching the thing the right way. Um, and so we're, we're, getting, we're getting stuck. Sometimes you're, you're pointing your hose at the, at the concrete and you just need someone to push your hand towards the grass and say, it's not growing because you're, you're missing the grass. Okay, so that would be my advice for that. How do you get rid of resentment even if you think you've forgiven someone? That's a really, really tough one. That's a great question. Um, like whoever that is, like thank you for being real. It's not easy. Like it's not easy to um, get rid of resentment. But if you have resentment, it does mean on some level you haven't forgiven them. Because resentment is different from um, being cautious about, about somebody. Right? Because sometimes wisdom might call for you to be cautious even if you've forgiven. Right? Where it might be wise to say, this, this relationship could be damaging and it's best for me to keep a distance. But without saying because that guy's bad or because that girl is this or whatever. Or saying that there's this. One of the best ways to help is to understand, that every, is to understand first of all, that sin is a disease. That's why I keep repeating that over and over. Because we don't tend to be mad at people for being sick. Right? Most people, if you're mad at someone being sick, you don't look good. Right? If, you, if you say that, like, I hate that guy, he's diabetic. Right? Like, I, I hate that he takes insulin. Right? Like, what a moron. So if you have that, most people will be like, what's wrong with you? Right? What's wrong with me? Um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> but if we, can see, if we can see people as being diseased, as well as yourself as diseased, okay, then you're gonna understand that often our conflicts are that we have diseases that we're struggling to know how to interact with each other on, right? Maybe I have the disease of pride and you have the disease of a loose tongue, right? Maybe I have the disease of impatience and you have the disease of like really pushing people's buttons, right? Like these are very incompatible, right? I was telling somebody who was upset with me something like, I have a disease where I kick I can't control my kick, and you have a disease where your bones shatter at contact. So keep two feet away from me, okay? Because you're gonna get hurt, okay? But if I have that mentality, it's not like, because you got this, it'll be like, I have an issue that I don't know how to tolerate this. Because then it becomes not an ego thing, it becomes actually a humility thing of saying, if I had perfect patience, I'd be able to tolerate. If I had perfect strength, I'd be able to carry this person. 
And if I start to view it in that way, okay, then I'm no longer gonna have a position of trying to, to say why another person is bad, right? Instead, I'm gonna, what I might start to do, this would be healthier, is to justify the person, right? Is to say, I am very hurt. I am very hurt by what the person did. I'm not asking you to pretend that you're not hurt, okay? But it'd be a, a, a higher calling to be able to say, um, for some reason, this person was caused to behave this way. It might be their disease, right? If somebody, for example, is lying, it's like, well, maybe this person is really, really worried about their reputation. I don't agree with how they did it. I don't agree that they that they did this thing. Objectively, I think it's wrong, okay? But maybe, maybe they just really can't handle the way that they're gonna be treated, right? Maybe every time this person told the truth, they got owned for it. And so their, 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 their reaction has become like a defense mechanism of just lying because they're worried that the truth just gets them in trouble, right? That if I can start making excuses for them, right, then I'm gonna stop viewing them in, a, in such a negative light. I'm not gonna be as resentful of them because I'm gonna be able to see that they're a human being and I'm a human being, that there's a bunch of things in life that made people behave the way they behave. There's things that I do that are messed up and there are things that other people are gonna do that are messed up. And if all we all do is point out how messed up everyone else is, we're never gonna be able to live with one another, right? That it would be a lot healthier and safe for us to, to do that. And the other thing that I would say is, is not like a end as an aside, pray for it. Right, like actually pray, like Lord help me to, like, to not resent them, right? Teach me how to deal with them the way that you did. These people were murdering you, Christ, and you, and you were making excuses for them while they were doing it, right? Like in the middle of their jeering and their mocking and their whipping and their crucifying and their nailing and doing all this stuff, our Lord actually really said, Father, forgive them, they don't know. They don't know. He was excusing them in the middle of it, not even like as an after like statement, right? I was saying, Lord, grant me to view people the way that you do. Help me to love people the way that you do. Help me to forgive people the way that you do. And if you're genuine in this, then do it. If you do matanyas, if that's part of your spiritual rule, devote some of your matanyas to that person, right? And say, like when you're going down for matanya, be like, Lord, forgive me and him or her. Lord, have mercy on me and her. Lord, grant me um, this virtue, me and, and, and him or her, right? Is, is to make it part of it and you'll find yourself, if you're getting closer to God, you're gonna find yourself unable to not forgive the person. But I'm saying you might find that wisdom still might necessitate keeping a healthy um, distance, but there will be no animosity in it. There won't be any negativity in it. It will be, you'll even be sad about it. You'll, you'll even be like, I wish we could be really close, but I might need to keep these boundaries for now until um, it's safe enough for me to approach again, right? Either I become strong enough that my bones won't shatter or that person's on the meds that he or she needs that they're not kicking, right? And I should want that, right? I should never not want that. So make sure that that's something that um, you want. Um, There's a few questions about God's will. Um, a lot about specifically God's will in marriage. Um, I know we've talked about it a lot, so I won't like I won't flog it to death. But 
God's will for everybody is salvation. Okay, that's what God wants for everybody. Does God have a specific someone for each and every one of you? My personal belief is no, he doesn't. Does God have a personal one person for some of you? Quite possibly, yes. In the same way that God might specifically want somebody to work in a particular place or career. There might be somebody that God particularly wants to go to a particular geography. God might particularly want somebody to do something. So what I will say is that when God wants something, he will tell you. It won't be ambiguous, right? The problem is whether or not you're in tune to hearing him, okay? And so that's the real issue, is that God's will is for you to be his children because that's what he made you, not because it's an extra desire, it's because it's who you are. Right? And because you have an identity, God wants you to be that identity. And that identity is himself, is the image and likeness of God. So if you are struggling to be in the image and likeness of God at all times, I can assure you, you are never going to really struggle with that. And you won't be afraid of making a mistake. Because if you make a mistake, it's not going to be the end of the world. This is why Christ says, he that is faithful little, I can, I can give much. But if you're not faithful to the little, if you don't know how to hear God, because sin makes you not hear God or because your own will makes you not hear God or because you're obsessed with what you want, then you're not gonna hear God, right? If, if what you're looking for is somebody to tell you why you should get what you want, you're not ever gonna find the truth because you're not looking for the truth. And the reality is what you want might even be the right thing, but you won't know. So you won't even have a comfort of the thing that you're in being the right thing because you didn't seek it, right? And so the most important thing for you to do is to live according to His will. So, so, to live according to the gospel in all things. Because if you do that, this is why Christ says, my sheep know me, they hear my voice, right? Because you're used to interacting with God where you'll be able to be like, that's not God, there's something not right. This thought is really, really selfish because I'm not supposed to be selfish right this thought is way more lustful than it is romantic right this thing is actually more about my self-gratification than it is actually in any way sacrificial or actually the reality is i really want this thing because um people think that i'm not good enough for it that can be a thing too right like i when i was when i was struggling with god about whether or not to join the brotherhood or not okay because god very directly called me to the monastery and then it seemed like he was trying to tell me to go to the Brotherhood. So I was, it wasn't easy for me. Like, like I'm, I'm a little bit confused. Like, why did you bring me here to send me here? Right? I, don't, I don't get it. And I'm hearing 500 billion different voices telling me different things. Right? And so I have no idea what, it, what it's supposed to be. One of the things that I was struggling with was like, you need to be honest. If you're looking for God's will, you have to be honest and you need to divulge it. Was, will I look like a failure if I leave the monastery? Like, are people gonna think that I failed that monasticism and everyone that knew me growing up was like, monk, 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 right? I'm like, am I gonna look like the guy who didn't make it? I needed to confront those thoughts, right? Because for me, it was that. For, for one of you might be like, no, I want this career because everyone thinks I'm too dumb to get it, right? Or I'm gonna, I'm gonna pursue this guy or girl because people think I'm not good enough for that guy or girl, right? Or because my parents are against it and their reasons are stupid, and so I'm going to show them that they're stupid and I'm going to make it work. That's a horrible reason to be with someone. If you're with someone to prove a point, God help you when, when the going gets rough and the going 
will get rough. I'm not married, thank God. But those first two years can be really, really like gruesome. Okay, so your pursuit of anything should be what is the truth? What is the right thing? And am I pursuing the right thing? That's number one. And is what I'm doing according to the gospel? That's number two. These are not in, in order of priority. These are just the factors. Number three, is this in accordance with this tradition that we received? Does this match what we saw in the lives of the apostles of Christ in the saints? Is this, is this in tune with them? Or am I doing something that's divergent from that? And if so, what is it and why? Okay, because maybe it's acceptable, maybe it's not. Am I getting guidance? Am I trying to assert my will? Am I being patient? Am I waiting and am I praying? Because to me, the two most important things are gonna be time and peace. Those are the two most important factors. God sometimes uses signs, he does. The danger of signs is interpretation. And so that's why for me, I, 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 don't, like, I don't like signs being interpreted. I prefer them to be a post-data check right, of the after effect of being like, in hindsight, I look at the collection of these and these match, because otherwise you can get very dis distracted. Um, when it comes to a spouse particularly, I would say make sure that what you are seeking is the kingdom. Because if you don't have an objective for your relationship, your relationship sucks. And so you might be very attracted to somebody and you might think that they're very compatible with you, but you don't, how are you judging compatibility if you don't have a goal, right? Like if I say I'm trying to hire an engineer and I just choose a random engineer, I need to ask, well, what is the project? Do I need a chemical engineer? Do I need a, a systems design engineer? Do I need a computer? What do I need for this job? Because if I just say, oh no, I just want an engineer that's compatible, it begs the question, compatible with what? So if you don't have an objective of your, of your future marriage, then what are you assessing when you're looking at compatibility? Because if you're looking for a housemate or someone to cohabitate with, then, then don't worry about religion. Just be like, well, she's hygienic. He, he cleans up after himself. Um, he makes a good money, right? He has good hair, right? Like, if, like you're, you're gonna have a, a whole different set of criteria, right? If it's just a housemate, right? They can follow a schedule, okay? But if your objective is salvation, then is, it, is this person holding me to a higher standard? When I wanna do the wrong, can I trust my spouse to make me do the right? Can we hold each other accountable towards that? Are we both believing in the same thing so that when we have a disagreement, we have an objective truth that dictates for both of us, okay? Because in a secular marriage, your relationship is, is as strong as your patience is. That's really all it is. And so you might have a whole lot of patience at the beginning when you're in lovey-dovey mode, okay? You might in the first few years to say we, we're the couple that made it. But statistically speaking, you're not gonna make it, okay? If we're gonna look at it from a secular perspective. From a secular perspective, statistically speaking, you're probably not gonna bother with marriage. And statistically speaking, if you do bother with marriage, you're more than likely to get divorced than you are to remain together. I think it's Mexico, there's some country in South America that has auto-expiring marriage licenses now. Okay, and that's the, and because it's, it's just an easier process to help that those who are still married, that they do the work because for the rest it's an assumption you're not gonna make it. That's really scary. So you have to have an objective, right? And if your objective isn't God, no problem, but don't ask the, don't ask the church, I'm not saying that sarcastically, don't ask the church for the help for that because you're just doing what you want and you're allowed to do what you want. No one's mad at you for doing what you want. I'm just saying that if you want it to go somewhere, that's the beauty of, of pursuing something objective, right? Is that there's a standard that both you and your, and your partner adhere to. 
But once again, I am not married, so I'm going to hand the mic to Winner Gregory. Um, in, when we have couples that are about to get married, there's actually a process where uh, sit with every couple to go through 156 questions. Um, and it could take eight sessions, it could take three, it could take ten, and it's not a group, it's actually with every couple. And we analyze every single question because we have to do the due diligence. Um, God's will does not preclude that we do our due diligence in it. And they enjoy it. They enjoy it very actually had one just before the meeting here. Um, but it's, uh, it covers financial, it covers sexual, it covers emotional, it covers child bringing, it covers the effect of your upbringing on the marriage, it covers the financial um, one account or two accounts, it covers uh, your personal approach to that, it covers everything. And that's the due diligence. And in it, um, people went, or went in more comfortable and more assured of the person than before. One, one of them resulted in separation uh, after the process. It's not a match measure, it's not a grading and amount of compatibility, that's why when people do it, we're not saying the result of it is not a check or no. It's in fact, even if you're not compatible, um, what may seem, but from the discussion, you see how another, each person thinks, it helps so, so, so much to find God's will, to test God's will, and to show that that your choice was based on the right choice. This is actually an assuring process, um, and this, um, maybe like went through 15 or 16 couples so far, each one on their own, and uh, it was a fun process, there's lots of laughing in it, and um, it, it goes that uh, you ask the question, and ha they have done the questions on their own without any other, the other partner knowing what the answer is, and they face one another with the question on the spot, when we sit together and they see what, why you answer this, oh, I know why you answer this way, and, and they discover more about one another, and they, you can tell as you're sitting there um, how, how it goes, or you facilitate when there is a point of misunderstanding. Um, related to free will, um, so there's two questions about the free will, I'm gonna answer very, Perfectly, I'm just piggybagging on it um, to give also Abuna a chance uh, because I, I love that he answers all your questions. Um, how do you find the balance between understanding God's will in connection to our free will? For instance, on one extreme, belittling our free will with like saying, "Oh, my bag ripped." That's God's will, and on the other side, we struggle. Um, to ask for God's will, but have an expectation that if we ask, he will uh, pull through with what we want, with what we want. Um, on, the, on the one end spectrum, um, God created physics laws where your bag rips because it has a lot of load on it, that's why it rips. Um, in fact, from in the creation again, Genesis 1, um, let there be, let there be means God creates certain conditions, puts the laws for it, and the laws will take effect. So uh, accidents um, take effect because of speeding. Uh, sometimes God may deliver you from one that could be miraculous. He can supersede physics, but he put physics because there are certain laws by which uh, the universe operates. The other part where it relates to the foreknowledge of God, because it relates to the second question as well, God has a plan anyway, 
just assure one thing about about God's foreknowledge. Um, his foreknowledge, his full power, his full work is for one main goal, to get you to the kingdom of heaven, to live to your maximum potential, which is no death. Maximum potentials of your existence is that you will never die. That's how you live to your maximum potential. It's not career only, it's not uh, marriage only, it's not even monasticism only. The maximum potential of a person is that you get born and you will never die because the design of God did not have death in it. It was a spurious effect that we pulled upon ourselves. So everything he will do, everything he will do facilitates for you to be in the kingdom of heaven. Put this in your mind and you will be completely relaxed. The idea is comes like, how do I know your will? I want to say two important things. First, due diligence. And then you have to be in always in communication with the Holy Spirit who lives in you. The Holy Spirit operates very simply. He wrote a way of prayer, it's called Agbeya. He wrote a book for you to receive relationship with God, it's called the Bible, and he sacramented the church for you to be one with God, it's called communion. If you are in these, believe me, your thinking, your decisions will automatically be God's will because you're already with God in all of the process. When you are away from God and then you have a decision, come to hear God's will, it can be revealed by discussion, by prayer, definitely. But you're not in tune. That's why there is confusion. There's no peace. I want to say that peace. That's exactly the answer to any decision. Something is not clicking when you are with God and in tune with Him. That's probably something that God is saying, think twice, at least think twice. Second thing, any nagging question, any nagging desire that you need to do it quickly is usually from the devil. The devil loves to push us to do something quickly, which is he succeeded to do with Eve when he discussed with her. He didn't allow her a chance to come back and discuss. He, he rammed through it. Eat. You will not die. You will become like God. Your eyes will be open, knowing good and evil. He rammed through it. And that's the nagging thought. When you have a nagging thought about something, say, wait a minute. This is not the way God operates. The desire, the spiritual desire simmers. Takes time to mature. Takes testing. It's never like nagging. Um, so that's another sign of what type of thoughts we should listen to. Um, don't listen to something instantly, unless it's about repentance. Repentance is instant. I rise up and go to my father and say, I have sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worried to call your son, but make me one of your higher servants. Um, how do we know if we have free will, if God already has a plan for us? Well, let's, let's, let's test it in, in Genesis. Well, did God know that Adam and Eve would eat from the tree of knowledge, good and evil? Absolutely, he knew. Did he facilitate it? No, he protected them from it. He gave him so much um, gift, and he warned him against this. The day you will eat from it, you will surely die. They experience free gift by free will by not going to it. So we, we need to separate the full, the full knowledge of God from your actions that you required, required of you. Um, you have the commandments, you have the guidance, you have the church, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. We don't lack anything. We don't lack anything in knowing the will of God. So don't always say, I don't have to do anything because God will do whatever he has in mind anyway. Well, that is really, really limiting a relationship. Believe about God, his forward knowledge about you is, has one goal, your success, nothing else. And that's why he warned Adam and Eve from participating in the tree of knowledge, good and evil. 
the forward knowledge of God, that's an attribute of his. If, in fact, if God doesn't know the future, we can't worship him. The, he cannot put any plan. He's just surprised by what's happening. So, one fact, you are already in God and God in you. Second fact, God uses all his power in your life is to make you enter the kingdom of heaven and wants everything perfect for you. In fact, there is Ecclesiastes 3.11, we said it before. Um, God makes everything for us beautiful to enjoy in his own time. And he has put eternity in our hearts so that the person would know the beginning of the thing from its end. Nothing makes sense unless eternity is put as part of the plan. Um, <clears throat> like what's the difference if everything ends up one way anyways? That one way is actually going to be the best for you. The only thing is that you need to be in tune with God. Last thing. Adam and Eve participated in evil. Even if you make a wrong choice, even if you make a wrong choice, God is the only one who has the ability to convert a bad past into a successful future. Hence, Christ came and removed the sting of death. So even if there is mess up, don't think that you already set your path into destruction and that's what God arranged for you. I'm arranging for you to be destroyed. That is not God's will, and that's not character, and that's not the father-son or daughter relationship. That's the devil trying to think of God this way, as he exactly convinced evil, convinced Eve to think of God this way. He's self-centered. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. He knows this evil thing. You don't know it. If you know it, you'll become like him. He's very jealous. Wow, wow, wow. And he convinced her, and she bought into it, and she acted. So remove these types of thoughts, that God never wants anything for you except success. Nothing else. You are in a father-son or father-daughter relationship, not in a headmaster-student or pupil relationship. So God's power is for your success. If any mess-up happens, God is able to convert the fall into salvation. You're the one who turned for me the punishment into salvation. God, God is able to convert this, convert the bad past into a successful future. So his will is always on your side. When I think to past events of my life and how God stood by me, I have every reason to trust in Him and every further step of my life. However, there, there's always a part of me that is irrationally afraid of God failing me. How do I take the leap of faith and trust God without thinking? How can I overcome these irrational fears? So one is don't stop thinking. Like, like He's not actually asking you um, not to think. But this is part of the experience of any relationship. Like again, you're in a you're in a relationship with with a real being, right? And 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 you build a relationship. It's not it's not built in a vacuum, right? You build trust by going through stuff, right? You might be afraid of your first set of midterms in college, right? But after you've done it a few times, it's like whatever. This is midterm time. We know what the, we know what it means, right? You might be nervous about some random thing that you did or you're doing or choosing from. But then, sorry guys, I think this one works. Um, so you might have nervousness about anything in particular. So it's not weird that you might have it with, with God. So as you build more experience, you're gonna be able to look at those more to quiet your own fears, right? You'll be able to look back and say, yeah, I had, I had that fear before, 
but last time I went through this, actually everything turned out okay. So like, yeah, I there was good parts, there was bad parts, but at the end of the day, I came out perfectly fine, right? So if that's the case, um, then I don't need to worry about it as much. Um, or if it becomes a new experience, So one is to use your own experience. The other part is to use other people's experiences. Right? I don't know why some people find that, like, fr like frown at that, right? Like, what's the problem? Because, like, today we have this, like, this kind of societal value that if it's not real to you, it's not real. Um, and that's dumb. Um, because we would have no progress in any discipline of life if we only trusted our own personal experience. We always look at other people's experiences and their knowledge and their experiments and what they've been through to assess what we're doing, right? So there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I don't get this, but this is one of the reasons why we read the Bible and the lives of the saints, right? Of being like, okay, I can relate to this guy right now. I can see why Abraham is stressed out of his mind, right? I can see why, why Lot's wife turned around, right? I can understand why... Um, King David did X or why Matthew thought whatever or why James and John fought about being number one right is that we read about these people both those in historic times but even those who are alive today um, to be able to draw from their experiences um, so that we can learn right like most of you like I always talk about Bruno Lazarus because he's a, he's a good example right for somebody for example who's dealing with doubt it's nice to be able to look at somebody like that and say well there exists a person who ought not to exist an atheist philosophy professor who claims to have seen the Virgin Mary, why would he leave this posh Australian life as a professor and live in a cave? Why? Right? Like, that's, that's a logical question to ask, where somebody else's experiences can inform your own to say, maybe I don't get it yet, there's something there that I haven't arrived at yet, but it's something that's real. So it's important to, um, to confront yourself with two things, knowledge and experience. Because sometimes your doubt from God and your, can come from um, a lack of knowledge, right? Because if you have a wrong expectation about God um, and then the person doesn't do the thing that um, you were hoping for or wanted, you might get upset and, and have doubts, right? If you thought, for example, that there's a voice that's supposed to come down from your ceiling every time you prayed and it didn't happen, then you're going to get upset, right? So then someone needs to tell you, no, that's not how he talks. Right? Or when he does, it's usually this, or, or whatever the thing is. And so you need to have the right knowledge. You need to have experience, both your own experience and the experiences of others. Um, and over time, it actually, you'll find that it, it gets a lot, like a lot, a lot easier. Where actually you come to almost have no will of your own. And not because he's asking you not to have one. We're just like, it's always worked best when I did what he wanted. Um, and so I, I don't even care anymore, right? Like that—that's a real thing that many that many people do um, do reach. But before we move on, someone had their hand up during the God's will relationship thing, and I didn't call on the person because I wasn't done yet. But I want to make sure that their question got answered if they're comfortable. It was in that general area. Go for it. Oh, it was answered. Okay, my bad. Sorry to call you out. 
Um, this one's a political question, literally. Um, are we are we obligated to vote according to our faith? Is it wrong to vote against something you believe in? For example, not thinking abortion is right for me, but allowing others the choice. Um, it depends on what you're doing when you're voting, okay? Um, like 10 years ago, I was mostly against Bible thumpers. Today, I'm more against Christian self-haters that think that they're not supposed to have a view, okay? I was talking about this earlier in the day with a couple of people. I don't know how many of you guys know that secular society or secular governance, how many of you know that that's a Christian invention? That's what I thought. Because the way that it's spoken about, you would think that this is something that was combating the Christians. Secularity was invented by Christians. When Catholics and Protestants had to live in the same countries, they said, you know what, this isn't working. Our fighting over making institutional values match the, the government. We need to have a governance that, doesn't, um, per, that isn't particular to our denomination. So a secular society isn't meant to exclude religious voices. And so what you need to be able to differentiate is when you're asked to the ballot, what is the question being asked of you? Is the question being asked of you, what do you as a member of society, regardless of what kind of member of society for you, you can worship chimneys if you like, okay? You can worship stop signs. You can believe that, that, that hell is made out of two-door cars. Um, you can leave whatever you want because the question when you're coming to the ballot is not about what is your religious um, conviction or lack of religious conviction. The question for a person coming to the ballot is what do you as a member of society think about this particular, in, this particular thing? Because let's say somebody believes that palm trees talked to him and told him that they think abortion is great. No problem. Because the question being asked is not based on your belief in palm trees, what do you think? Right? The question is, based on you as a member of society, what do you think? And so you should not feel ashamed to have a view about what's good for society. Right? You shouldn't be upset um, that you have a particular stance on an issue in the same way that another member of society has a different stance than you. By living in a democratic country, we're accepting that sometimes we're going to get our way and sometimes we're not. Okay, but that shouldn't make you not say what it is that you believe. If you believe that abortion is wrong, then you believe that abortion is wrong, right? It's the same way that what if somebody believes that the death penalty is wrong even though they're not a Christian, right? Should they say, well, even though I emphatically think it's murder and it's really bad, I don't even believe in God, I just think it's wrong. Should that person say, but I think that people should be allowed to kill whoever they want. It's just because I don't personally prefer killing. But if other people want to kill, by all means, go ahead. That's a really messed up way to approach it. Because you're, 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 you're being approached as a society to say, we're trying to form a structure to have a functional civil society where we're at peace with one another. So what do you think? So it, you don't have to lay down your opinion. You just need to accept that you might not get your way. That's the difference, right? So I don't think that you should be forced to repress your view in the name of saying so that other people can choose. You either have a belief about something or you don't, okay? Having said that, inevitably, you're gonna end up probably voting for a party that doesn't agree with everything you believe in anyway. 
right? Like there might be one party that's anti-abortion um, but pro-gay marriage, right? You might have one party that is anti-marriage, anti-gay marriage, but actually victimizes the poor. And as a Christian, you should care about whether the poor are being victimized, right? So you're gonna be forced um, to make decisions about those things. And so the best thing that I would say is, know your faith, know your beliefs, know why you believe it, but also understand when you go to vote what that your civic duty is. Understand what the platform is of the party for whom you're voting and make an informed decision when you do it, right? Understand what they stand for. It doesn't have to be about one particular issue. It can be the overall, what do I as a citizen think is best for the country as a whole um, and, and not just base it on one particular moral issue. I'm just saying that that's, that extreme is like the extreme of, of laying down your, your thing is wrong and the extreme of making everything about one thing could be wrong, um, depending on how strongly you feel about that thing really is what it, what it comes down to. Does that answer the person's uh, question or anyone else's uh, with that? Just like have some conviction. Do you have a question? The issue when it comes specifically to abortion is that it comes down to a question of, do I believe this is killing? And so the question that I have to answer is, when I'm voting, what I'm basically voting on is, do I believe that there's ever a situation in which someone is allowed to make a decision about another person's life? That's the real question, right? Unfortunately, the, the social rhetoric has turned into, do you believe in women's autonomy? Or do you believe, so that the, the pro-choicers, right? That's their, their platform is my body, my choice, right? The pro-lifers, I don't associate with any label personally, right? I, I'm a Christian who has a stance that killing is wrong because these, these name tags have started to mean different things versus whereas the pro-lifer, which used to just mean I don't think abortion should be, be allowed, right? The, the statement they're trying to make is killing is killing is killing is killing, right? Regardless of where on the spectrum of life you find yourself, that decision shouldn't be made. And so we're, we're everyone's speaking loudly about two different things, right? And so that's the real question when I go to the ballot should be, do I think that it is good for society that anyone be allowed to make such a decision? Right, that, that's the real question. Um, and so, because if I believe that it is wrong in all times for somebody to decide someone's life, like for me, I'm consistent in that. I don't believe in euthanasia and I don't believe in death penalty because I do believe that there's an absolute about life and this would be my view even as an atheist, that some things have to be an absolute. If we permit people to assess the value of anyone's life, we have a problem because it can be extended to so many different things, right? And so that should be the question. If I don't believe that, if I do believe that there are some circumstances where a person can decide, then your vote will be based on that, right? Of saying, actually, I, I do think people could decide, right? I do think that the Christian stance is no, personally. Um, there are some things maybe that are open for interpretation, um, but I, I personally believe that that's the, the stance, right? Yeah. 
what is the difference between abortion and the Holocaust? Don't the people who don't have a voice should be defended? I mean, isn't that a person who's just given time will be a person? When did you define? That's why secular wise would define the the pregnancy in so trimesters to to make the person human after a while. Um, and this is again when theology plays a part. Let it be to me according to your word when the Saint Mary said to the angel that she will give birth by the Holy Spirit. At that moment, the conception happened. The person is a person when the conception happens. So that person has a voice. Just give him time and he will have a voice. I don't think he will have a voice like, please kill me. Right? So you are voting to defend the people who don't have a voice and being murdered without given a choice to live or not. That's the Holocaust, right? I don't see a difference between abortion and the Holocaust. There's a question about the role of the saints, where did it go? Um, can the prayers of the saints on our behalf, our relationship with them play a role in our salvation at all? Absolutely. Um, this is something that's very beautiful about Catholicism and Orthodoxy, okay? Is, is our understanding that the church is a living thing. The church is a community. This is not, it's not about our, our uh, it's not a personal salvation, okay? And so God actually takes pride in and rejoices in the whole community, in the whole family. And so to us, the saints are very much alive. They're not people who are dead, okay? So just, again, like pretend it's real because it's real, okay? So if you can understand that these people who have, have that our predecessors are real and they're really alive, then just like within your own families, within your own communities, within your friendships, within your own institutions, there are people who influence you in different ways. There are people you look up to as heroes. There are people you learn a particular skill from. There are people who put in a good word for you and a boss that somehow got you a promotion. There is somebody who defended you when there was something that went wrong. There's a person who comforted you when you were sad. This is the role of the community of the church, the living and those who are already living but in a different way in heaven. It's a whole participatory thing. And, and I really hope for your, like, I, I do see a bit of a difference in, I come from like an in-between generation where like saints were a big deal for us. I don't see it as alive and as a whole in this generation. I don't mean you guys specifically. Um, and for some of you individually, it might be. I actually even see a little bit of hostility <laughs> towards the idea of relationship with the saints, which is not healthy. Um, it's like any kind of extremism is wrong. And so the participation of the saints in our lives is as real as so far as you allow it to be real. Um, so if you are able to get to know the saints, um, yes, they can play a role. It might be someone's story that affected you, right? It might be that that saint actually physically, quote unquote, and spiritually entered into your life to, to help you, right? God, God is, is, is emphatically giving us family, right? That these are members of, these are just members of the family. Saints, it just means the holy, agios, if oeb, whatever you want to use. That's, that's all it means, right? They, these are people that we've identified as MVPs, essentially. Okay, is that what you said? These are people who played hard, they played well, they were kind of above the average, they were really disciplined, 
right? There are war veterans that we decorate with medals by saying this person went above and beyond the call of duty to action in a way that was way more than what we did. And so they're, they, what they did is heroic, right? That's, that's, all, that's what the saints are, right? And so God sometimes does give them specific dignities, right? Of, 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 of recognition of their, their, their generosity and their love, right? And might allow them to participate. Right? Because of St. Pope Krodlos, Marimina was known again. Right? Like Marimina suddenly was a thing because of Pope Krodlos' relationship with him. Right? How many people got named Mina, was my old name, because of, well, I was named after just some random dude, but how many people were named Marimina after St. Mina? Right? Um, how many people today are being named Krodlos or Cyril because of Pope Krodlos? Right, like it's 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 it becomes real because they tasted it, they experienced it, they saw the lives of the saints living in a way that's with them. So definitely, God does allow the saints to be a living part of um, of salvation. I don't know how bored out of your minds you guys are. When you guys are like, are you guys tired? Like, are you guys okay? <laughs> Just looking sure because I I can drone on. Send the paper. Um, <laughs> yeah, they can, they can write it anonymously if you're too embarrassed. Um, As Abuna is preparing for the next one, uh, how exactly are you supposed to profess Christ to, uh, to others? Is it by uh, preaching only, uh, actions only? or both, um, how? Um, two things propagate God, uh, love and answering questions. Because, um, I always say this, if God give us a mind, he will not give us a faith that requires to dumb yourself down to believe in it. And that's really the whole theme behind answering questions. Answer commandment in the Bible, First Peter chapter three, Revere God in meekness. Revere God in uh, Christ in your heart. Be ready to give an answer to everyone who uh, asks you for the reason, that for the hope that's in you. And do this in meekness and reverence. So one, have a relationship with God. Two, be ready to give an answer. A comforting answer, not a shoving down answer. Elevate the person. Identify with the person. So we have to have knowledge. Um, and the third one is that you do this in reverence and meekness so that you consider this person, although he might attack me or she may attack me, uh, God sent me this person to serve them, to serve them. And um, so that appears in the relationship. Um, whether you influence the person or not, that's God's touching the heart. And if you see, for example, anybody knows Arianos, Anybody knows that, that name, Arianos? So Arianos, thank you. Arianos is the... <laughs> thank you very much, you made me feel much better. <laughs> Arianos is the expert in torturing the Christians to make them leave the faith. He was the governor of a city called Ancena or, or An An Antoni in Upper Egypt. And eventually, as he was killing Christians, shoot, shooting them by arrows, um, miraculously, or depending on his seating, it doesn't say exactly, uh, the arrow hit him, and one of the spectators told them, take off the blood of the martyrs that you just killed, rub your eyes, and it will get healed. And it did. 
and he believed in Christianity and he uh, confessed the faith to a neighboring governor and he was martyred and he was buried with the two martyrs that he just killed. This is the expert of killing Christians. Anybody who's a tough saint, they send them to Arianos. Very, very common in the biographies of the saints. How do we know the biographies, by the way? Because there is a certain company under somebody called Julius of Akfasi or Julius of Akfas. He was wealthy, so he had employed 300 people. Their job is only to follow the martyrs, write their biographies, collect the relics, and send them to their hometown. That was Julius Lakfas, and he died as a martyr. That's, I don't want to get in his story, but that's basically to show that, that the turning of a person to know Christ is God's work. As long as you offer the service and the answering of the question, and if you don't know the question, you can research it, and that's a very good motive actually to know about your faith. Um, as the one is ready to answer, I think there's some couple of um, questions that came. Um, what are the limitations in confidentiality for confession? It's absolutely confidential. There's no um, qualifying factors about it at all. If you want to relate something to somebody about a certain topic, you're going to talk about somebody else, you can take the permission of the confessor. May I talk about the, with the other person about this? And if they say yes, because they want to resolve the problem, then you take the permission of the person. You already take the permission of the person to open. You don't open it on your own at all. In fact, there are things I know about the church from confessions. I don't act on it. It's forbidden because I knew it in the context of confession. I just leave it till God makes me know it outside the context. I don't snoop around it. I don't ask about it. It is the, it is the purity. It is the purest form of the church. And that's what the whole goal of the faith is to go back and to feel you could be relieved. That's the system of relief, not the system of management. Um, is lab-grown meat acceptable during the fast? <laughs> I think it's 10 o'clock. <laughs> but I love the question, actually. I think financially it doesn't happen yet. Um, so it's not at the price point. I don't think it's we are at the price point yet. You can lab-grow, unless somebody knows this. Uh, Abuna may know, or uh, Abuna Andrew in St. Paul actually was in the food business, so he might know this thing kind of <laughs> I can ask him. So here, the people here from St. Paul, please ask Abuna Andrew if there is lab-grown meat or not. If there is, let me know, please. I'll be very interested. The second question is the Beyond Burger acceptable during the fast? That's a yes. That's a, that's a clear yes. <laughs> and it's the same note of the, the confession. I really love the person who asked it. Um, if you want to confess it, please come. <laughs> Um, the archangels are not a symbol of the Trinity. It's a, it's a misnomer. It's because of the calling them the, the archangel Raphael and Gabriel and, and, and Michael. Um, they're not a symbol of the Trinity. These are three distinct, distinct angels. They don't have one essence. Um, the only Trinity that has one essence is you and God. God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one essence, one God. The person is the self, the mind, and the spirit. Genesis 1.26, let us create man in our image and our likeness. You are the only resemblance to God, and that's why between all of the other creation and man is not a gradual step. There is a completely different existence and essence between man and anything else. So it's a misnomer, or 
or basically because these are three and these are three, that's the only symbolism, but there is no symbolism at all between the Holy Trinity and the three archangels. Um, the question is, how do you get rid of guilt? There's so many sermons on forgiving or letting go of anger when someone has wronged you, but how do you forgive yourself or get rid of guilt if you feel like you did something wrong? That's a good question. Um, one is, if your guilt is because you've wronged another person, then you might actually get your liberation by talking to the person, right? Like if it's because you're, you're quietly carrying the guilt of something, um, then confront, right? Of, of going to the person being like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually really struggling um, because I feel like I've wronged you, right? I've done X, and that's, that can be a huge relief to a person. Um, to get off their backs of just confronting it. The person, regardless of the person's reaction to you, they might be forgiving, they might be angry, but at any rate, you've done the right thing by saying, I've, I've wronged you, right? And this is, part of, this is part of repentance. If it's something you've already confronted or something you've already confessed about or it's just something you fell into the past, um, surprisingly, I would say the answer is to begin with humility. Like what we were talking about earlier, of saying, yeah, I, I actually am capable of falling, and I fell. Right? That that is that is that is a normal human thing to do. Is that we we do normally make mistakes, and so part of the issue with guilt is sometimes that we we even though we don't word it that way, is that we're looking at ourselves in that sense of, but like, I shouldn't have done that. And it's like, yes, you're correct, you shouldn't have done that, but you did, and that's all there is to it. It's not a, there, there's not an issue here. So if your guilt is coming because you think you've got this tyrant dad who's angry, well, he's not. That's why he gave absolution freely, right? They didn't, there, there's no price tag to the, to the absolution, right? We don't charge you, right? Like, God doesn't say, well, actually, give me 40 matanyas and I'll think about it, right? Like, it's just like a, it's okay. Right, just like he did the, the, the every every person caught the woman caught in sin, he defended her. Right? And and his only thing he said to her, right, he did not even pause for a moment and be like, Look what you did. Right? Like there was not even a shred of that. Christ's response to the sinner woman, right? It says that he had his head down, he's writing in the sand. Um, and actually some people there's a tradition that he was um, writing out the law of Moses like in the sand while he did it and then he like wiped it away right but then he he looks at regardless of what he was doing he didn't even care much for the people accusing the accusation was true her crime was true right there was no misunderstanding she was caught red-handed like the singer said um and <laughs> yeah there's another singer <laughs> it wasn't me um <laughs> that's inappropriate um <laughs> But God's response to her immediately was woman, which was like my lady. It wasn't like a sarcastic thing, okay? It was like my lady. He's giving her dignity. He's giving her respect. Where are your accusers? And she was probably scared out of her mind um, at that, this encounter um, because this is life or death for her. Like, like literally life or death for her. And his response to her was, neither do I condemn you. Your sins are forgiven. Just don't do it again. It was that simple, right? So learn how to accept the love of your dad, 
right? Learn how to love the, to, how to accept the love of your father in humility and say, thank you for being so kind that you're not holding it against me and recognizing that your guilt is actually possibly going to hurt your relationship, right? The initial feeling of guilt is, is not wrong, right? The initial feeling of guilt if it's coming out of love is a healthy response. It's saying that I feel like I wronged you and I feel, I feel guilt towards that. But once this thing has been forgiven, right? If you hold on to it, then actually you're, you're ruining the relationship, right? Because you're, you're basically going to have this negative attitude toward this person who's actually being really nice, right? But you're not able to even take their niceness because you are viewing yourself in a particular way, right? So it's to accept your humanity and to accept your falls with a desire to learn from it and not do it again. Um, that's, that would be the best way to go about it. It might be, if you're still struggling, it would be good to talk to somebody, right? To understand what is it that's driving you to still feel that way in spite of that knowledge, right? Maybe it's that you doubt, actually don't realize that you do doubt in the real forgiveness, right? Maybe it's that you're a perfectionist and you actually need to be more humble about that and that you hold yourself to a standard higher than, than maybe is possible for you. Maybe it's that um, you're judgmental, including of yourself, right? There's, there's a whole bunch of things that it could be. But number one is confront it, right? Confront it if it's not confronted. Number two is um, be real about your weaknesses, right? To bring it to objectivity. And number three is, is to, to delight in the mercy of God rather than to dwell on yourself. It's more egotistical for us to dwell on ourselves, right? And it's, it's better to dwell on the mercy of, um, of, of God himself. Uh, one person wrote, I'm going through what theologians have called the dark night of the soul that I think is tied to my feeling of depression and anxiety. I'm having a hard time finding the motivation to get out of it and, not, and I'm torn about trying to fix my mental health in the hope that my spiritual health will improve too as a result. How do I work on both the mental and spiritual if I'm too lethargic to get out of my spiritual depression as it is? Number one, um, you've actually made a self-diagnosis that might be incorrect. Um, and I don't, and I'm not being sarcastic. Um, some people confuse a dark night of the soul for something that's not dark night of the soul at all. Um, and so they'll read about dark night of the soul and think they're having a dark night of the soul when in fact you might have been misdiagnosed. Um, because you might actually be having a problem of conflict between your ego and your superego, right? You might just have particular thoughts. It might not be that at all. It might be the way that you're living. So it could be a dark night of the soul. So number one is it's important for you to talk to a spiritual um, coach or guide who actually has experience in that. Um, not everyone has experience in that. So that you can make sure that your diagnosis is proper because the treatment depends obviously on... Um, this is a better mic. Um, the treatment is going to depend more on the diagnosis. Um, so that's number one is that make sure that there's that. Number two is obviously anxiety and depression are, are a real thing. Um, and so you need to make sure that you are getting the proper help that you need for that, right? It might be medication, it might be therapy, it might be counseling, it might be physical activity, it might be social, all of these are things that affect depression and anxiety, right, in various levels. And so it's important to talk about that because the two go hand in hand. Because what, the only thing that will be different for you in your spirituality is not going to be on what's true or not true. What's going to be different for you is the kind of things that you need as your health. Right? Is that somebody, for example, who's got severe anxiety, they might need somebody more than others do to hold their hand. 
that's okay, no problem, right? It just might be a bigger need for you than it is for someone else, and that's not worse or better, it's something that's different about you, and that's all there is to it, right? And so you might need to have more people around you to support you when you're down. Maybe somebody else can handle a little more physically on their own than you, no big deal, right? So it might be that you need that. You wanna also make sure that your spiritual guide is somebody who understands that, right? Because we, the, yes, there are cultural factors that exist. I know that mental health in um, Egyptian culture um, is not always well understood, right? And so you might have somebody who might be trying to push you to do something that maybe you're not ready to do or that you can't handle because they don't get that there's an actual block to you in being able to do that. So make sure that you're with somebody who gets it um, so that you can be coached um, properly um, so that you don't so that you feel heard because if you're not feeling heard then you're not going to take the advice well and the advice might even be right but you might not be able to handle it because you feel like the person doesn't understand um, your your predicament so bring that to your father of confession honestly many of us are like getting more help in that like Emma Sarbian for example I know my, my Quran is ordained as a, as a deacon he had I think he does it regularly but um, he actually brought in mental health experts that are that are not clergy to come and talk to the clergy about how to approach, what to think about. I mean, like life is not solved in, in a few sessions, right? But but just at least that there's there is a growing awareness, there's a growing understanding, there's a growing um, uh, recognition, right? That there's more to an issue than might apparent be apparent, like at, at the, the first eye's view. So be open with it and know that and be confident in. God is going to deal with you as you, okay? So God is going to be holding you responsible according to your abilities and about your strengths and weaknesses. He is not, it would be like, it would be like somebody, like God's not a tyrant. God's not gonna, like for, if, if somebody like is paralyzed, God's not gonna ask them why they're not running. That's not a thing for God, right? So if you are paralyzed emotionally, God's not holding you accountable for that because there, there's a real physiological dimension um, to anxiety and depression. So get the right help from both is, is really the short answer, right? Is make sure you're getting your clinical help for the, the, the mental health issue. Make sure you're getting the spiritual help for the spiritual issue. And I would say that make sure that both of the experts that you go to are ones that are accepting of both. I get a little bit anxious, I'm not gonna lie, about um, secular therapists, not because I think they're unqualified, but because there is a little bit of a secular slant, just like I'm able to acknowledge that sometimes there's ignorance from the clergy side about mental health. I acknowledge this, that that does exist. I also think that there's often a bias against religion from the mental health from a secular perspective as well, where they think that everybody's just upset because religion is tying them down. Um, and so I do think it would be important to try and seek out, I don't care what denomination they are personally, but I think it would be healthy to try and get, if you're getting a therapist, to also have a therapist who, who is accepting and respectful of your religious views and even better if they can understand them too. Um, because then you'll feel understood all around, right? From both sides, that so there's a team. I know that in my own case, for example, um, I've had people who have confessed me that have various uh, mental health issues from um, being um, borderline personality disorder, okay, to schizophrenia, to severe, depression and bipolar, different versions of bipolar. And there are some people who at the request of the person who was confessing to me, I was in regular contact with the person's therapist. Um, and we regularly dialogued and, and, and with full consent of the person that we were dealing with, having conversations and I actually found it very helpful. I've had some people ask me to go with them to their sessions 
so that I can understand and hear exactly the thing and, and, and it was very helpful. Okay, so there are many like there are many people who are very open from both sides, um, and so just get the help that you need. Exactly. Uh, just uh, it's not conflicting. It's not against one another. <coughs> Guys, would you like to stop now? Is it or continue? A couple of questions or hmm? how many? Like fifteen. <laughs> I think there's like 40. <laughs> sorry, sorry, not 15, 40. <laughs> That's Abuna's number. So I'm not about two more? Two? Hmm? Choose the best one. So it'll take us two hours. That's me. <laughs> It'd be discrimination if we choose the best one. Choosing a random because um, <clears throat> Question here. Hi, I was wondering if you have any insight on the following quote. The sin that is done in public, punished in public, and the theological error which is broadcast openly in public should be publicly refuted. Uh, Pope Shenouda. Uh, Pope Shenouda has done this. Actually, I have heard his, the, the tape myself. Was one person, his name is Ahmad Nazi. He has written a book called um, Salvation in the Orthodox Dogma. I heard the refutation in public between them because um, Ahmad Nazi insisted this is the title to be and Pope told him baptism is necessary for salvation because for theological reason, very briefly, you die and resurrect with Christ, so you become a new nature. And if you don't believe in it, publish any book, just don't label it in the Orthodox faith. Publish Salvation is not necessary, sorry, baptism is not necessary, but don't label the book Salvation in the Orthodox faith, call it salvation. And I met Nazi's faith in whatever faith, whatever it may be. Once you label the term Orthodox on it, then you become accountable. So he had a public actually hearing with him in the cathedral. It was recorded, it's an old one. Um, but this happened after sequence of sequence of warnings that uh, Ahmed did not respond to. And eventually he asked, he invited him to come and defend his viewpoint publicly because he insisted that this is the Orthodox faith and uh, the Pope will not stand that this is the Orthodox faith because it is not. So this is, this is where it's, uh, this is where he, he what we quote comes from is that in the context is that if somebody is publishing something, this is the sal salvation or the theology in the Orthodox faith, and it's not, then that person can be accountable publicly as well, because he started to spread it. Uh, but advising-wise, we can talk to the person privately. Maybe he will pull the books from the market. Maybe he will, he will publish an errata. I mean, if you, if you work in academia, there's so many publications that come out, and then there's... Um, by the way, it takes about three years between submitting it, if it's a reputable jour journal, with peer review, and then it gets published. Some very often, and I've, I've done this myself, 
if there is new data, if there is new experimental data, if there is new results, you can, you can say there is an errata here because this equation, I thought it fits the data, there's another one that fits it better. And you send and then they publish the errata. Completely acceptable, very, very common. Um, so that could be an avenue. The per person publishes the first book, I was wrong. This is for com personal communication. And here is the correction to it. That's, that's a correction to it. If the person insists no, then there could be a public, um, a public judgment because the person has been approached. And this happens, by the way, if the letters between Sincerel and Nestorius, Sincerel sent numerous letters to Nestorius, and Nestorius insisted on his error. And that's why there is a council that was done in Ephesus in uh, 431. And even just to be consistent, not to add on to what Abuna said, it, there's, a, there's a system of order, right? It's not about humiliation. Like imagine if, if the, in the Supreme Court people are allowed to just walk in and start screaming, right? Like, like there's, there, there, has to be, there has to be a system, right? That if you were, or for example, if the press makes a public statement about someone, they're held accountable for their statements, right? So even in secular society, there is a standard of accountability that differentiates a public action from a private action, right? We don't need to publicly censure somebody for doing something in their house, but if somebody does something in a public way, it's, it's, it's seen. Um, before I answer the last one, um, are you guys okay with me keeping these questions to use on the blog for Q&A? Because um, there's a lot of really, really good ones that just there wasn't time to, to get to would be good. I'm going to go with a yes unless someone wants to yell no, um, and then I'll arm wrestle you. Um, <laughs> What are your top three books or resources? That's how we fix it. Um, <laughs> what are your top three books or resources you'd recommend for someone looking to get started in advancing their spiritual life and theological knowledge? Number one is the Bible, um, and I, I really, really mean that. Like to read it, like really read it. Um, actually, to pray it, the Bible. Um, number two is on the incarnation by St. Athanasius Apostolic, and number three is The Life of Antony by St. Athanasius Apostolic. If you have... <laughs> God is saying to stop. Um, so, it's a very good um, those, Between those three, you will have the full fundamentals of your faith, you will have the full fundamentals of your spirituality, and you will also have the guidelines for how to live a spiritual life. Thank you guys for your patience and for everything. quickly before we stand up to pray because everybody scatters just a couple of announcements number one Catherine